Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week, we come to you from Washington, D.C., and specifically, we're at the museum, an amazing building, an amazing museum celebrating everything to do with the First Amendment freedom of speech, communications, and, of course, the news business. Taking your calls at 888-887-3837. That's 888-88-PETER. And if you can't get through on the phones, you know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. We'll be doing that throughout the show. My Twitter handle, at Peter S. Greenberg. And you can follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash petergreenberg. When you think about this, this building, which has been here about eight years, but the museum's been around for about 20, when you think about this building and what it celebrates, uh, if there's anybody who belongs in this building, it's my next guest, legendary correspondent for CBS News. I'm not going to tell you how many years he was there. He'll tell you that. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, the stories that he's covered, the history that he's witnessed, the history that he's been a part of, um, and, and I'm proud to call him a friend for over 30 years. Uh, Mr. Bill Plant. Thank you, Peter. I should note that staring over your shoulder, I see the U.S. Capitol building from here in the museum. It's a really impressive view. It is the best view of radio I've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. Uh, they couldn't have picked a better location to talk about the news business and in Washington, D.C. than right here. That's for sure. I mean, okay, how many years at CBS? 52 and a half. 
Not, who, to, not to put too <laughs> fine a point on it. You see, when, you know, when you're two years old, you use the use the half. Yeah. And I guess when you when you've been at that been at this that long, you come back to the half again. Right. You've seen so many changes, and part of this museum celebrates the changes in technology, of course, the changes in basic news gathering, but also news distribution. You've seen you've seen the changes from when you were using the old CP16 cameras and 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 trying to you know, pouch film. Uh, out of Vietnam and crazy places to now where it's instantaneous. Well, I often say when I give a speech that when I started covering the White House in 1981, the news at 6.30 Eastern Time on CBS, NBC, and ABC was what we said it was. You really didn't have any other options to find out what was going on, not very many anyway. Right. uh, By that time, your afternoon newspaper was probably already dead. Uh, More or less, yeah. Yep. And unless you were uh, reading a lot of magazines, uh, you really didn't have anywhere else to go. And now, now, with the changes in technology, you can, you can assemble your own news according to what you think. Now, is that a great idea? Hmm. Well, technically, it's a great idea, but content-wise, we have issues with that. Right. At least I do. And by the way, you talk about the evening news. I go back to my days at Newsweek. There I was. For seven years, I worked for a magazine that was considered the hot magazine in America. It was the magazine that people looked to for confirmation. They looked to it for uh, basically anointing what we thought were important stories and getting them out. Well, Newsweek really isn't around anymore the way we we used to know it, uh, because what Newsweek was doing was confirming what people were already seeing elsewhere. Those of us who had a couple of deadlines every day used to think of the reporters for Newsweek and Time as slacking as guys who worked <laughs> one day a week or maybe two and the rest of the time if you were overseas they played tennis with the ambassador you know um, did you really believe that well kind of <laughs> well i actually beat the ambassador four games no 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 but we had a different different rhythm if you will because mondays were, were our easiest days because there was nothing we could do about it whatever happened the good news is if it happened on a Monday, we had five days to figure it out. But as you know, and you've lived it, at least in my experience, the you-know-what-hits-the-fan on Fridays. And, you know, if you, if you look back historically, you know, the Patty Hearst shootout Friday, Kennedy assassinated Friday. I mean, you know, stock market crashes Friday. Or even just any government official who has bad news to put out. Slips it out Friday slips night. Slips it out on Friday afternoon. Yeah. Right. The theory being, by the way, yeah. that nobody reads the Saturday papers and that it'll, you know, just sit there until Sunday. They still practice that. Sure. They still do, right? They're just hoping the bad news comes out after the stock market closes on Friday. Right. And But now people are reading it. They are looking at it, just different platforms. Sure, you get it online right away. Exactly. You don't have to wait. When you started at CBS News, they were still doing a newscast every night, just like they are today. Right? Still half hour. Right. Right? That didn't change. Right? What has changed in terms of what you, when you first started, in terms of news gathering? Well, for one thing, we now have many more sources available to us on a regular basis. We can go online and double check things. We don't have to call the research department. We can usually get hold of people by email or sometimes on their Twitter accounts uh, who might not have answered the phone back in the day. So our options have expanded as well. But the options on the other side, say, take the White House, for example, which I covered for 35 years. They now have their own Twitter account. They have their own blog. They have their own video show, which is on the web once a week. 
So they have all the same tools that we do to reach the public. Take the president-elect. Mr. Trump has his Twitter account, which he says reaches, I think he says 20 million people, whatever it is. That's the immediate uh, touch that he has with the public. And he's claiming he's not going to give it up. Uh, it's now, it will be subject to the Presidential Records Act if he does it as president, which means that it's all, it all has to be cataloged, everything. But I guess that doesn't matter to him. I guess not. Well, let's talk about covering the White House for 35 years. Um, every president was different in terms of how they dealt with the press. Um, you started with which president? With President Reagan, 1981. Right. And that's where you and I first met. Right. Um, Reagan did not hold a lot of press conferences. No, but he did, uh, he did them in prime time in the uh, East Room of the White House. He knew how to, how to work the audience. Right. And in those days, when you could take uh, an hour of network prime time on a weekday night, that was a big deal. And it guaranteed a certain size audience. You'll notice that recent presidents don't have nighttime news conferences because the networks won't give up that time anymore <laughs> since it's uh, available on cable networks all day, every day. I think the last time I saw the networks give up prime time in the evening was when Obama announced the death of Osama bin Laden. Right. Am I right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And that was a big deal. I mean, that was a big deal for them to give up that sure. time. Well, yeah, but it was a great story, a huge story. Yeah, and you couldn't, you couldn't stop that one. It was happening. Um, but the ebb and flow of information from the White House press office to the White House correspondence, that's changed. It has because uh, the way we get it has changed. Toto, I've a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Speaking with the legendary Bill Plant, 50 year, excuse me, 52 and a half year veteran you got it. <laughs> of CBS News. As the White House correspondent, you traveled when the president traveled and where the president traveled. Back in the day, when in the 80s and in the 90s, whenever the president traveled, the press corps traveled en masse. Huge, huge group. You had a charter flight? Chartered aircraft, uh, which flew ahead of uh, Air Force One, so it was there when it landed and then waited till it took off. They interchanged in the air. And there were crews from every network, from a whole group of newspaper reporters, uh, photographers. There were, you know, probably several dozen people on each one of those flights. Right, and you also had the White House pool on Air Force One. That's correct. There are 13, 14 seats uh, at the rear of the Air Force One. Definitely the rear. All the way in the back. All the way in the back. Uh, Just ahead of the back galley, which is in the tail, on one side of the aircraft. And you have, on every Air Force One flight, the network pool uh, of uh, whichever network is up that day. There are five networks, CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox, and CNN. So every day it's somebody's turn. And on the day that the president travels, whatever network it is, there's a camera, there's a sound person, and there's a correspondent. There's a newspaper reporter, a magazine reporter, uh, wire service reporters from the Associated Press, Bloomberg, and Reuters and several photographers. So 14 people total. They go wherever the president goes on Air Force One. 
but they pay. They, they do. Oh, you bet. We you we pay, pay you pay one hundred and ten percent of the existing first class fare. I believe that's the for that's the figure we used to use. I yeah. I think it's probably still true. Yeah, I, and I remember, thanks to you, I got to be the pool reporter one day uh, on Air Force One, the seven hundred seven with President Reagan, and I remember sitting in the back, way in the back of that plane, um, and there was a was it a, an Air Force mess on board? Uh, we had tuna fish sandwiches. And I paid 110% of the first-class flight from uh, from uh, the Western White House, which is out by Santa Barbara. We actually went from, uh, was it, Port Wyneme, I think, uh, back to uh, Andrews Air Force Base. Imagine what the fare was from uh, the West Coast to, say, Beijing. Ch- China, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And I had a thrill uh, about a year ago. As many of you know, uh, when they retired that particular aircraft, it was uh, tail number 27,000. Uh, they flew it out to California, then they disassembled it, and they trucked it and put it in the Reagan Library and reassembled it. And it's a static display there, a beautiful plane. Uh, and when you look at it today, it looks so small. It lo- doesn't it, Bill? I mean, Compared to the 747, which is now a presidential aircraft, yeah. Of course, uh, you should know, and your listeners should know, that any aircraft on which the president is flying it's called is Air, Air Force, Force One. One. Even, at- even it's a Piper Cub, although you won't find that happening. No. Uh, nor will you probably find a 757 with the word Trump on it as Air Force One, because I don't think he'll be allowed to fly that plane because it doesn't have the necessary communication or electronic countermeasures that the Air Force One plane does. Sure, the Air Force One 747, that big bubble on the top of the 747, that's not passenger seats. That's all communications equipment. That's right. And it's all guys sitting at consoles doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Right. But the thrill that I had was about a year and a half ago, I went out to the Reagan Library because I wanted to see that plane again, right? And, uh, and I talked to the, to the director, and I said, can I ask a favor? And she said, yeah. I said, could you do this for me? And they actually let me go back on the plane and sit in my seat. Okay. And those were very small coach seats, weren't they? They were. They yeah. were. And we sat uh, three across uh, with a table in the middle and three across on the other side right? so that, you know, you really couldn't stick your legs out without slamming into the person across from you. Exactly. And I actually saw this happen on my flight uh, with the Reagans. Nancy Reagan used to roll the orange. She did. On takeoff, uh, she would roll an orange down the aisle, and somebody would catch it and try to roll it back up. However, on the press charter plane, there was trace surfing, wasn't there? Uh, on, yes, there was, actually. On the, <laughs> on the press charter plane, the normal rules uh, did of not apply. safety were not often observed. Uh, not often is an understatement, my friend. Nobody fastened their seatbelt. Well, uh, the tray serving was actually pretty interesting because on takeoff, of course, the airplane is sharply uh, nose up. Nose up, and if you are on a tray in the aisle, you'll go sliding down. And that, and people did. The trick is keeping your balance, of course. I know. And who was the winner of that? Uh, I don't know. I never did it. <laughs> But you were a witness to it. I did. Okay. And everybody used to hang their keys up, right? The hotel keys and everything? Oh, yeah. There were all kinds of, uh, there was all kinds of relaxed nonsense going on. Uh, the food service was great. Uh, we had the same crew, so we knew the crews. And, you know, they were very, they were very, very, uh, you know, hospitable. So, Loose. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it was, uh, it was a great way to travel. But we don't have those anymore. They're too expensive. And now when the president travels... The press corps has to uh, keep up, go ahead, catch up. Commercially? Commercially. There's no more press charter? No more. When did that end? Uh, About three or four years ago. It just got too expensive? Yes. Wow. 
And yet when you did travel with the president, right, I mean, it was nobody was really slacking. You hit the ground running because you had to follow their schedule and it was pretty grueling. Of course, the, the whole idea of having the press charter is so that you're there when the president arrives and can cover what he does. So even if you, to take one example, had a flight from uh, Honolulu to Tokyo for the funeral of the Emperor Hirohito in Japan back in the early days of President George H.W. Bush's administration, you got off the plane, you went directly to the Imperial Palace and stood there, no, no chairs, thank you very much, for the next four hours covering the funeral. So it wasn't all, it wasn't all party time. Were you covering President George H.W. Bush when he threw up? <laughs> no, I wasn't there. But um, there was a camera which showed it, and, of course, that became a very big deal. <laughs> In all of your travels, either covering the White House or as a war correspondent or covering the Civil Rights Movement, what was the one trip as a trip itself that stood out to you? Well, it's hard to, it's hard to single out just one. I mean, there were, uh, there were a number of presidential trips which were quite spectacular in terms of uh, in terms of the news coverage, for example, um, President Reagan going to China. Uh, that was uh, and President Reagan uh, meeting with uh, Gorbachev, the Soviet Prime Minister in Vienna, first time that he had met with any of the Soviets, and the first time in several years that any American president had met with them, and of course uh, that was a very big deal. So and the Iceland summit. The Iceland summit in Reykjavik, uh, where uh, the president proposed doing away with nuclear weapons entirely, uh, which didn't happen, but nonetheless, progress was made. And then the diversions, the unscheduled stops. Well, uh, that happened occasionally. I mean, uh, or sometimes uh, there were mechanical problems and we had to wait. We got stuck an extra night in Istanbul once because uh, the captain's seat had come unsprung, and they had to get <laughs> they had to get new uh, a new seat flown in for the captain. Uh, and so the president had to wait. No, the president didn't wait. We did. Oh, oh, the pre- oh, on your charter flight. That's right. Got it. Well, I remember when when Nixon was president, and was flying from San Clemente back to Andrews Air Force Base. The plane would often make the seven, same seven hundred seven that is now in the Reagan Library. That plane would often make an unscheduled stop in Colorado. Do you know why? No, I'm going to tell you. Because in those days, Coors beer was not distributed outside the state of Colorado. And they would stop there for so-called refueling. Right. Well, it was refueling. It was but refueling. It, but a different kind of fuel. Sure. And they'd load up Coors beer and then fly on. Well, that was then. <laughs> uh, and now things are a bit different. That wouldn't it's happen. It's pretty buttoned up. Yeah, the imperial presidency is over. Well, I don't know about that. But the, um, uh, the high times for the White House press corps is over. If you are continuing on to another southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. I always love coming to the museum for one particular reason. Not because I'm in the news business, because I am, but because it's great storytelling. Um, and... It's always the story behind the story, or the story you didn't see, or the story you could see now from a different perspective. And joining me now, the COO of the museum, Scott Williams. How are you, sir? 
Fantastic. How are you doing today? Wow, that was a good answer. Fantastic. Good. Okay. <laughs> but so seriously, I mean, first of all, you know, you've not, you always haven't been in this location. You start. You were up in Roslyn, I think. That's right? right. All right, across the river over in Roslyn. Eight, eight years ago is when we opened here. Right, and I'm telling you, this is like the perfect location. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't have a, a better view. I mean, for those people who are obviously not watching what we're doing right now, that's right. You can't miss the Capitol right behind me. Right, right over your head. Right over the head. Um, but what was amazing, amazing to me is the first time I came here, and I'm I, I pride myself as a bit of a news junkie. I mean, I'm in the business. I've been covering stories for years. I started at Newsweek and was you know racing around the world. It's all the storytelling here. Mm-hmm. And you never run out. Of, well, first of all, you never run out of news, but you never run out of storytelling. That's right. From the moment that you walk in the in, into the front facade of the building, and there's a row of newspapers, you know, that go up every single morning. Did you say the word newspapers? Newspapers. There are still newspapers, and people read newspapers. You know, it's right outside the front of the building. You have mm-hmm. the the front page mm-hmm. of how many different newspapers? Well, we get uh, 1,500 a day from from all over the world, and then we put 50 out front. You know, one from every state and then we have a, a display um, up on the top floor where we put about another 30 more and what's amazing to me and that's gonna sound so silly is every time I come here I stand in front of the building and I watch people because they're, they're displayed right in front of the building and I watch people walk by and I'm talking about kids mm-hmm. who are looking up at a newspaper right Right, it's like hello. Yeah. They still exist, and it's very interesting to be able to when it, when big news happens to be able to walk along and see how each newspaper interpreted what was going on, how they designed, right. um, how they designed their paper, and then we have a you know like you, we have a lot of people that worked here that were fr- that are from the news business that are journalists, and so every day they pick the top ten newspapers based on you know a variety of different things. You know, is it something that's particularly interesting in the news at that at that point, and then they. We publish those, and we get thousands of people every day that go on our website to look up to see who the top ten were. And a lot of people bookmark the newspaper from their hometown, and instead of going to the newspaper's website, they go to that page every day just to see what's on the front page of their hometown newspaper. I love it. I do that with the Memphis Commercial Appeal. Because that's where you used to hang out. That's where I used to hang out for sure. And that used to hang out at Graceland. I did many, many, many hours. But, but you put that together over there, mm-hmm. right? Well, yeah. I mean, what was interesting to me about Graceland, we're going to divert and digress for a second, Sure, is it's one thing to see where Elvis lived. And by the way, you, you're really in a time capsule there when you see that building mm-hmm. because his taste was interesting, his choices, you know. I mean, we're living in the age of Donald Trump now with gold leaf, but Elvis had his share of it. Absolutely. Um, and yet, I love the plane. Mm-hmm. They, you parked the old Convair there, mm-hmm. the Lisa Marie. Sure. And for people who don't understand the history of the Convair, it was an attempt to compete uh, with, with with Lockheed and with, and with Boeing and with Douglas on four-engine airplanes. Mm-hmm. And a couple of airlines actually flew the Convair for a little bit, like Delta. Mm-hmm. And they flew it, you know, from Atlanta to Los Angeles, and they they flew it all over the country. But it never really succeeded, even though it was the fastest plane in the sky. Mm-hmm. It was the fastest jet in commercial jet in the sky at the time. And right. Elvis uh-huh. got one. Right. Right, it wasn't very uh, cost efficient to fly. No, oh, however. It, it was a it was a fuel guzzler even back then. <laughs> yeah, oh, that, even that back thing then. ate, and it smoked. Yeah, and when that thing flew by, the, the engines right. were smoking. But I mean, it ate fuel like you couldn't believe. Right. But he, but his was the celebrated plane because, you know, even living in the age of Donald Trump right now, he was the first entertainer of that era. Mm-hmm. Who had his own plane? Oh yeah, and he also Elvisized it up, so it was you know gold. Oh, yeah, leaf we know. And, you know, <laughs> they had a big double bed and you know big gold uh, seat, seat belts. belts I know it. The, yeah, I know it. 
I mean, and you can actually tour it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's fun. It's amazing. Well, yeah. when we come back, I want to talk about the storytelling here. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel. Cruising and playing the radio. With no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. I've been speaking with Scott Williams, the COO. You know, back to the whole idea of storytelling. I mean, part of what got me involved in journalism to begin with was that you got to get to the scene first, mm-hmm. right? And part of what you tell here are the stories of how journalists did get there first. Right, right. And and what's interesting here at the museum is we're both storytellers, but we're also telling stories about storytellers. So it, uh, you know, it's sort of uh, is like a dog eating its tail sometimes. So we um, have, for example, the radio antenna from the top of the World Trade Center. And then we tell the story of how journalists, photographers, photojournalists, you know, videographers ran into the disaster instead of away from. And we have a lot of kids, about half of our visitors are 18 and younger. So all these kids are coming through and they're actually seeing a lot of this for the very first time and really comprehending exactly what happened and when in the timeline. And then right over that are the front pages from that disaster from all over the world. And it really is, uh, it, it really has an impact. Well, at the bottom line has to be you're providing perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I remember, I mean, 9-11, we all remember where we were, but we remember where we were as journalists, too. Absolutely, yeah. But you also have, in terms of trying to maintain the history of this here, you have the memorial to the journalist who passed away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, each year we unveil... Uh, new names on the on the journalist memorial. Unfortunately, hopefully there will be one year where we won't have to. But we do put the, unlikely. Put, yeah, right. Absolutely. You know, but we do put the names on there of the journalists who who've passed away in the past year as reporters who from all over the world are reporting the news. And then we and, have. And a, by the way, this year was the worst year ever in terms of reporters being imprisoned overseas. Mm-hmm. I mean, just go from from countries like Turkey to. Many others. Right. It's, it's been worse than ever. Right. And, and you know, th- it's an opportunity for their stories to be heard. Their families will come here for the ceremony. And a lot of them, this is the one place where their loved one's story of sacrifice is being told. So um, it really is. We also have the, uh, we have the memorial online so people can go and read through past years and the stories of the people who sacrificed their lives. And, of course, in the history of television journalism, you know, you've got those benchmarks, you know, the Walter Cronkites, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the, the Murrows. Right. Uh, right. You've, you've even had conferences here where you put together symposia on how would Walter Cronkite cover this? Right. And that's what's really interesting is we recently celebrated, um, you know, his 100th, his um, 100th birthday. And everybody, you know, a lot of people came and we did celebrate his contribution, but the, the conversations naturally shifted to very contemporary, very current, what would he think, what would he do, what should we do, how should we react? You know, we're in we're a huge time of evolution, so, you know, that's very applicable to what we do. Because I remember during 1968, I mean, Walter Cronkite, his ratings, 
right? I mean, he was getting 38% of the audience was watching him. Right. I mean, can you imagine that today? Yeah, you impossible. impossible. But the very famous quote, when Walter Cronkite went to Vietnam and came back on the air, and did his first two or three reports, mm-hmm. LBJ was watching it from the White House and said, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the war. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, we, we recently had a Vietnam exhibit that asked the question, did the press lose the war? And that's what we try to do is when guests come here, we don't just want to show them things. We want to ask them questions. Was that really the question, did the press lose the war? That was the question wow. that the exhibit explored. And so um, it— um, It exposed the war. It's— that's exactly that's 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 what you know if you studied if you looked at the exhibit that's the you know what you would end up thinking as well sure i mean it's interesting we we, we i'm i'm a big fanatic about air force 1 and the history of those planes especially mm-hmm. now with 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 the president like trump about to take over he may have to downgrade you know going from the 757 with the gold leaf to the more spartan 747 <laughs> exactly yeah but the ironies of of the way stories were covered on those planes and who had access right right um, the irony of all ironies is that lbj when he was president every president gets to like redecorate the white house he redecorated Air Force One and installed a hydraulically controlled desk. Oh wow! That would yeah. rise up so that, that anybody who came in to see him in his office on Air Force One had to sit below him. Oh. They had to look up <laughs> at him. Right? Wow, that's great. Yeah. And when Richard Nick- and he also did two other things, he installed a wiretapping system on Air Force One so that he could listen to all the conversations of all his passengers. Wow! He wanted to know what they were thinking, what they were talking about him. Right? The very first thing Richard Nixon did when he came on board the plane and saw it was he ordered the desk taken out. And he ordered the dismantling of the wiretapping system. Wow. Isn't that ironic? That is very <laughs> because ironic. Because guess yeah. what? We all know what happened. Yeah. Oh, right. absolutely. And speaking of which, we actually have the the uh, Watergate door here on display as part of the— From the Democratic know, National yeah, Committee? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. So that tells part of that story. And a lot of aspects of, of that are told there as well. So, What's your most fascinating exhibit here, in your opinion? Yeah, people ask me that frequently. Um you know, I mean, I think. What's the wow? Give the, me the wow. The, for, for me, you know, the biggest stunner is probably the Berlin Wall. I mean, that's kind of an easy answer, but you stand on one side and you see what freedom looks like with all the graffiti and the spray paint and the colors. You walk around to the other side and, and you see blank. what the lack of freedom looks like, and it's concrete, just a solid concrete wall. And that's the one. That's, that for me is probably the, the biggest impact. And it's also, interestingly, the picture that gets most shared from the museum is people standing in front of the Berlin Wall here in the museum. Amazing. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. I know it's sort of like sounds self-serving, but I I actually like coming here because it celebrates so many people I learned from, and it celebrates so many people that I know. Uh, And of course, the whole history of the First Amendment, the whole history of freedom of the press, uh, the whole history of broadcasting, of dissemination of news and information. And joining me now, the Director of Exhibit Development at the museum, Patty Rule. How are you? I'm great. Delighted to be here. I mean, this is a, first of all, what a great location this building is in. But you also have, what, 15 galleries and, and, and 15 theaters. We do. Um, there's so much to see and do here that when you buy a ticket to the museum, you get to come for two days. Wow. That's not a bad deal. That's not a bad deal at all. Talk about hop on, hop off, and come on back. Exactly. Come back and see more because so many people come and say there's so much to see and do here. 
there are days of videos to watch, um, things interactives to experience, galleries, the Berlin Wall, so much, so much great. I thing. love any museum that's interactive that allows you to, to more thoroughly immerse yourself in the actual content. Mm -hmm. Give me an example of, of what are your more interactive exhibits. Wow. Um, let's see. In the FBI exhibit, we allow you to kind of dive deep into one of the cyber cases of the FBI. Um, you know, as more and more people are living their lives online, that's where criminals are going to try to uh, take money and things away. And you can kind of go into their exploration of, of that case. And um, is that based on a story that was done? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's based on a real life case. Um, we have an ethics uh, gallery where you can go in and deal with real time we issues. Need a, we that, need an ethics museum. <laughs> that's that's for sure. That's for sure. But this is kind of allows you to um, be make in, a choice, make a choice, make a choice, understand what uh, journalists, photojournalists uh, are doing or dealing with everyday deadline pressures. And I have to tell you, I have the same issues in my own office. And these are with people who are educated, quote unquote, at journalism schools who do not understand that you need corroborating sources and it can't just be a guy named Joe and that you can't, that Google is not synonymous with research. Wikipedia does not mean it's right. And, and we should do a, a joint project here at the museum on vetting sources. Absolutely. It's so important. It's, you know, you see how it's in the news every day. Fake news. Did it, did it affect the presidential election? Um, First Amendment issues are on the front pages of newspapers and in your news feeds pretty much every day, um, whether it's freedom of religion, the press, assembly. Um, you know, the president-elect just talked about punishing people for flag burning. These are all qu questions that relate to the First Amendment. Exactly. And First Amendment really deals with freedom of the press. So that's we're right here. Absolutely. What I always find fascinating every time I come here is that inevitably I will see one person going through an exhibit who really did not have a clue of any kind of perspective about what it meant. And then all of a sudden the, the bell rings and they go, oh, I get it. Now I, own, now I know why this is important, right? No matter what side of the political fence you're on, it doesn't matter. It's about the process of journalism, news gathering, um, and news distribution. Absolutely, but it's about a lot more than that, too. We're all about um, defending free expression and the five freedoms of the First Amendment, and the new exhibit that we have coming in in January is all about free expression and musicians. You know, well, while you open that door, mm, okay. what are the five freedoms of oh, the First Amendment? Oh, all right. Uh, speech, press, petition, assembly, religion. Good. And bathroom breaks. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, just double-checking. But people forget that, don't they? People don't know it. Um, you know, our Museum Institute does an annual survey about attitudes about the First Amendment, and fewer than 30% of people can name a single freedom of the First Amendment, not a single one. So that's kind of scary. So our work is cut out for us. We hope people will come here and explore the freedoms of the First Amendment that, um, that are guaranteed uh, for all Americans. And um, but What you also see here is when the First Amendment was challenged and, when, and also when it was celebrated. Absolutely. You see you know, cr you know, critical cases, uh, you know, Mary Beth Tinker, how she challenged the right of students to wear a simple armband in protest of the Vietnam War in our First Amendment gallery, our Cox First Amendment gallery. Really powerful story for students to see. You know, this young woman, you know, back in the 1960s was against the war, wore a simple black armband to school. Principal said no. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. It's a landmark decision about students' First Amendment rights. So it's really an important message. It's not just grown-ups. It's people, you know, young people, too. These are vital and vibrant stories that we need to know more about as Americans. And then there's one thing that I, I get such a kick out of, and that is, I mean, I love newspapers, okay? I'm not old school. I'm real school, right? And I love the idea that you can go in and get a newspaper and hold it in your hand and learn something, right? 
Now, I actually read 16 newspapers a day. I always have, because it goes back to my days at Newsweek when I was required to, but I loved it, right? Fantastic. Mm-hmm. I'm asking the people on my own staff, would you just read one and not online? Hold it in your hand. Talk to me about it. Clip it out, right? What you have on the front of the building here is you display the front pages of so many newspapers, and every time I walk by, it's sort of like, now nah, that's cool. That is cool. And you know, for old school folks like yourself who like to see the actual print. We no, can, we real have, school. Real school. What real are you school. talking about, Patty? <laughs> but you can also um, get it on our app. We have a, a, a Today's Front Pages app. You, know, you can come here and see them. We get more than 900 newspapers from around the world every day. And you get to see it. And you get to see it. And you get to compare it. That's the best part about it. I think that's what's fascinating when you see the same basic information, how different newspapers in different states and different countries package the news and present it and, and, the, and the points of view that are, are, that are given. And remember what Patty said at the beginning, you buy your ticket here, you get to come back for two days. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now our radio clearance, over. That's clearance, over. Over. Roger. Huh? I've been talking throughout the show about some of the cool things that are exhibited here all the time, including just even the display of newspapers every day, which just drives me nuts in the best way. <laughs> um, joining me now... Who's got the best job? She's the curator of the collections here at the museum, Carrie Christofferson. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for being here. And you're always changing, which is great. I mean, there's certain permanent displays, and then there's also the new stuff all the time. Absolutely. One of the things you've got going on now is something called Louder Than Words. Yes. Um, it's the newest thing to open at the museum, uh, January 13th, 2017. So um, it's a great show about rock, power, and politics. And, the, and basically the marriage that marriage of rock power and politics, which which goes back, I mean, I'll give you my personal history on that. I covered the McGovern campaign mm-hmm. for Newsweek in 1972. Right. And that's when the stars came out. You know, uh, James Taylor, Barbara Streisand, and, and uh, you know, Carol King, and they were all performing for, for George. Right. Right. And that was the first time you saw, because you didn't see it that much in 68. Uh, things mm-hmm. were just too crazy then. Um, but in 72, that was when people really felt there was going to be some kind of change, even though it didn't go the way George McGovern wanted it to go. Right. One of the largest landslides in history. Right. right? I, think he only ca- I think he only carried one state, which could have been yeah, South Dakota, <laughs> um, which was his state. But yet, that's where you saw all the music stars come out. Yeah, amazing stuff to see. Um, And, you know, there's certainly instances even before that where maybe they're not embedded in campaigns, and that's certainly only one piece of what this exhibit is about. We're really looking at um, the way that... How they affect the change. Yeah, the way they affect expressed um, opinions about peace, protest, um, politics, civil rights... Um, well, if you go back rights. that far, other than, other than just political campaigns, then you're talking about people like Bob Dylan. You're talking about you know pe- way before Woody Guthrie. Absolutely, and this this exhibit really um, uh, Guthrie is um, represented in it through some artifacts, and then uh, we start sort of with the birth of rock and roll, with which is happens in the Eisenhower era, right in the Eisenhower presidency, which is not your sort of natural thinking. He's not the first president you think of when you think rock and roll, but that's really where rock and roll is born. And so we start with that presidency and go, move forward um, in time and look at all the ways that um, music and artists have been part of the public um, understanding of these social issues throughout the course of time. Either the public understanding or the public pushback. 
Both, right? And so it's the way that um, music has both been an expression of perspectives on all sides of these issues, as well as been used as a force for change. So um, in both both sides of the, the aisle, as it were, and um, in all ways. When you have the meshing and the blending of culture with politics, it's almost inseparable when it comes to music because you're talking about ways of life, you're talking about approaches to life, which then influence the politics. Absolutely. Um, most certainly that is um, one of the ways that we examine um, this marriage of power and politics and rock in the exhibit. What was the biggest, in curating this exhibit, what was the biggest surprise and revelation to you about a particular artist and his or her influence or a particular group and their influence on, 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 on the culture and the politics? Oh, man, that is, a, that is a tough one. I'm going to have to... But one that you weren't expecting. Right, right. No, I understand um, uh, what you're asking. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay. I mean, when Bob Dylan first came out, mm-hmm. he wasn't a, about a new kind of dance, which if you go back and look at all the, the old video, which of course is transferred to video now, of all the commentators talking about that, you know, rock and roll was almost communist at one point, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Bob Dylan wasn't that. He was just sending a message about about expressing your opinion, mm-hmm. right? As, right, as opposed right, right. to just a dance form. Right. Well, and I would say, you know, one of the things that um, I was really intrigued by was we have on exhibit these lyrics from uh, James Brown uh, for his song, I Don't Want Nobody to Give Me Nothing. And it's this interesting perspective of him saying... Um, it's a song of black empowerment for sure, but he's also... What year? What year? Mm, what year? 69. Oh, boy. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. But I would walk by We've been speaking with Carrie Christofferson. No relationship with Chris. Sorry. No. Nope. Different spelling. Yes. Uh, about the curation of her exhibit, Louder Than Words, about the unbelievable relationship between rock, power, and politics. Absolutely. It's- We're talking about James Brown, that song, 1969, which was such a pivotal year in America because you had, that was the year of the moonshot. That was the year of the height of the Vietnam War. Right. And the anti Vietnam War movement. movement. And Woodstock. And what, excuse me, of course, yeah. <laughs> right, you can't miss that, of course, when you're talking about music and, yeah. and uh, protest. Um, so, right, so this song that is a black empowerment song, but it's also an expression of um, maybe a more conservative perspective. I don't need a handout. I'm going to pull myself up, you know, um, something that I just hadn't really recognized as being a part of the culture sort of at that point in time. And another one that I found, you know, sort of um, surpri- not surprising, that's the wrong term, but, you know, I was re-reminded of the way that Born in the USA was misinterpreted by so many when we were doing the research. Can you actually be re-reminded? I don't know. I like the I word, though. I probably shouldn't no, no, no. I, no, that. Kara, I like that word. <laughs> there are a lot of people that like to re-remind today, as a matter of fact. I'm sorry, but keep True going. True enough. I just had to jump in there. Go ahead. Um, that so many people really misinterpreted initially the... Um, 
the song Born in the USA, the Bruce Springsteen song, and took it as a purely patriotic song. But there's much more to it than that. I mean, there's certainly patriotism embedded in it, but it's also, you know, um, a social commentary um, and a and little way, bit speaking, biting. Speaking of the news business, I, I have an admission to make. Okay. I was, part, I was at Newsweek then. I was with Maury North, and she and I did that cover story. The very first cover story on Bruce Springsteen, which ran the exact same week as the Time magazine cover story on Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and 98% of America had never heard of him. And it, it, it ranks as, as one of the great, interesting and intriguing moments in, in journalism in terms of news magazines. Because how did two of the, of the biggest news magazines in America jump on the same story on the same week when nobody even knew or what we were talking about? unknown. Exactly, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Incredible, yeah. incredible. There's, there's, there is the hive mind, as they say. You and know? and the reason, by the way, was that both news magazines, in and of themselves, had come to an independent conclusion that the new Messiah was here. <laughs> interesting, interesting. And they, they we, and they wanted to be first, and they ended up playing a game of chicken in which nobody blinked. Right. Well. And out it came. Yeah. Uh, there it goes. And then, and then the rest is history. Incredibly, you know, with the, um, him skyrocketing to to being. Completely well-known, you know, ubiquitous name. The boss. Yes. All right, so he's represented here. Absolutely, yep, yep. Any artists that tried to change it that didn't? Oh, gosh, that's another great question. I am, I am failing epically you on, are the, not, on the... No, there's no such thing as failing epically, because if it actually fails epically, you'll become the exhibit, you see. <laughs> you can't do that. Um, no, but of all the people that you've exhibited here, that you've curated, right, obviously the Beatles had made their statements, uh, Rolling Stones as well, mm-hmm. uh, but their statements were not necessarily politically initially. They were just lifestyle statements. Yeah, some of them were not necessarily right? political. Yeah. But then, I would say between 1970 and 73, mm-hmm. it was it all became political. Everybody came out with an album, a protest song, a protest album. Um, there's certainly, yeah, there's a good deal of that and there's a great amount of it represented in the exhibit. We even have, um, some great opportunities for interactivity within the show where you can, um, go to a jukebox that we have, um, fashioned where you can, um, examine, listen to, look at, um, songs from that are both anti-war and support the troop movement songs that are protest remember and barry sadler had a song called absolutely. the green berets absolutely it will be there it's there see you i knew will it be able to listen boy to am it, i dating sure. myself now oh am i in trouble <laughs> and also even elvis pushed back with with patriotic songs yeah sometimes yeah yep absolutely you are 100 percent correct wow barry sadler and the green berets Right. I'm right. going to guess that was 1965. I may be wrong. Ooh, and I'm not going to be able to confirm or deny <laughs> that one for you. Um, Spoken like a true Washingtonian. <laughs> confirm nor deny. Yeah. And then that, you know, but those songs, they aren't just, you know, sort of trapped in the 60s when we think of sort of the height of the um, war protest movement. There have been songs that, you know, follow along the sort of support the troops, protest the war um, timeline straight through, you know, to practically present day. Um, so the, the jukebox isn't sort of stuck in one era. It, it spans the breadth of time that the exhibit spans. And probably not part of your exhibit here, but if you go, you know, there are only about 13 presidential libraries in the United States. It only started with Herbert Hoover. Mm. And if you take a look at all the presidential libraries, some of them actually have great exhibits of the campaign songs that were written just for the presidential campaigns. Which, right. when you listen to them now, 
are absolutely fascinating for right. what they don't tell you. Right, right. Well, and we do definitely take a peek at some of the campaign songs or the songs that were used by campaigns um, during the course of history, right? Like I said, we start with Eisenhower and we come forward. And, and isn't it interesting that so many campaigns now make appeals to these music stars on different sides of the political fence saying, absolutely. please don't play our song. right. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.